Hey everyone, this is Patrick with the 307 RPG Podcast, and I just want to take a moment and say thank you to all of our amazing patrons. It's because of you that we're able to do the things that we do. If you like our show and you want to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash theforgeherald. Thanks everyone, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 307 RPG Podcast. My name is Patrick, and tonight I am your host, as we have a very special guest on our show. He is a writer, he's a developer, and you probably know him best as a gentleman gamer. He is Matthew Dawkins. Matthew is joining us tonight to talk to us about the game Call of Cthulhu. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very glad to be here. So, like I was saying earlier, you have me at a disadvantage in that normally you and I know what we're going to be talking about. We kind of have an idea of how the conversation is going to go. This yeah. time, we're talking Call of Cthulhu, and you've been working on a source book that is as yet unnamed, unmentioned, and I don't know what to ask. So, Un- unnameable or unspeakable is actually a good way to uh, <laughs> refer to it, uh, given the source material. Uh, yeah, it really I, have, is. I did. I did check in with Chaosium before doing this interview to see how much I could discuss about the upcoming book and the answer is very little uh, it is a book about the uh, the great old one uh, whose name begins with a big capital H who shall not be named uh, often likes to wear shades of yellow and uh, dwells in a place called Carcosa as we know time is a flat circle Otherwise, the the content of that book and when it will be released and everything is so far a mystery. I've it's fully written from my end. Uh, all one hundred and twenty thousand words or so were written by myself. It wasn't co-authored, and um, that was quite an undertaking. I can tell you that's the first time I've ever had to write a book anywhere close to that size by myself. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really happy with it, and hopefully in the next few months, more news will come out about it. Well, we have a few things to cover tonight, and I'm really excited to hear more, well, what you can, and that may be all you can tell me, but I, I want to backtrack just a little bit, Matthew, because typically Nolan and I talk about Dungeons & Dragons or even Vampire the Masquerade or other World of Darkness games. Call of Cthulhu is a new one for us. And with so many people coming to role-playing games, specifically Dungeons & Dragons, because of Critical Role, I thought it'd be really probably well-served our listeners if you just kind of went into what is Call of Cthulhu. Okay, well, Call of Cthulhu, the original short story, was penned by an author by the name of H.P. Lovecraft. And the Lovecraftian elements of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game are quite removed now from what the game itself is about and Call of Cthulhu is at heart an investigation game. You play investigators from various walks of life, typically in the 1920s period, and you could be set anywhere around the world. There's lots of lovely source books set in all kinds of places. But these investigators will tend to be looking into something like someone has gone missing, or there's an unexplainable murder, or any any kind of mystery that you might find from the kind of uh, serial novellas or the like of the time. And they inevitably, during the course of this investigation, stumble upon matters esoteric and weird that they don't necessarily understand. And as they delve deeper and deeper into this mystery, they tend to lose their grip on reality. And in Call of Cthulhu, the primary mechanic, as it has always been, is sanity. 
you have your attributes, your skills, your uh, even magic points if you want to risk losing sanity to learn spells. But as well as having hit points, you have sanity points. Sanity points essentially chart your mental degradation. And it doesn't go into such things as uh, real-world mental illnesses. Your characters don't start developing things like depression or schizophrenia or become schizoid personality or anything like that. Your is essentially your grip on reality, on being human, just erodes. Um, now, this, when it was introduced back in, I think, and I may get the year wrong, I think 1979 was the first edition of Cthulhu, but I could be wrong. Uh, this idea of having a mechanic that wasn't just charting your health was quite revolutionary. And it has become a central concept of Call of Cthulhu ever since. That the old adage when running Call of Cthulhu is your, that your player characters will either end up dead by the end of the story or insane in a sanitarium. Now, I wouldn't say that has to be the case, and in fact, I would say that running Call of Cthulhu with that objective in mind every single time can come across as a bit lazy. It's kind of the staple of the Call of Cthulhu convention game. But I would say that the risk of sanity being as pressing, almost more so, than the physical risk to your characters really puts a different slant on how you approach a game of Call of Cthulhu as opposed to how you approach game of Dungeons and Dragons, for instance. Um, because what I've found as a keeper, that's the GM in a Call of Cthulhu game, is players tend to be a hell of a lot more cautious in Call of Cthulhu than they are in any other role-playing game because they, they want to find out the answer to the mystery, but they want to set up as many contingencies, fallbacks, essentially covers for their eyes, so that when they open the door and see the solution to the mystery on the other side, they don't just lose their minds and become vegetables. <laughs> uh, so people become quite cautious about their characters, their character actions. It's uh, always an interesting game to to observe, let alone run or play. Um, to go further, uh, Call of Cthulhu does have a setting. Uh, it has a raft of great old ones that are essentially like alien gods. They have no attachment, really, to humanity, and they very rarely take human form. The old uh, stereotype is eyeballs and tentacles are plenty, really. Uh, they also have lots of weird and creepy monsters, from deep ones, uh, kind of amphibious or fishmen, uh, to star spawn and uh, the, uh, the great race of Yith uh, and the Hound of Tindalos. You you have all these creatures that are so eldritch and different to what you might find in your staple. Uh, fantasy role-playing games. So there's no orcs, no goblins, nothing like that. It's all entirely alien and weird. There's a lot of body horror as well as psychological horror. Creatures that are made up of a tiny little fungus just all coagulated together to become flying polyps or um, things that are crawling mounds of tongues or things that just defy physics and reality, so you might be facing up against what is, for intents and purposes, a split in 
mathematics uh, <laughs> hovering in the air. This thing does just not compute by looking at it and by staring at it. You start losing your mind. But the problem is, while it's there, it is eroding reality around it. So what are you going to do about it? Uh, so it's uh, it's a very interesting game. It's one of the longest lasting uh, tabletop role playing games in terms of its age, and it's on its seventh edition. So yeah, it's um, it's definitely one of my favorites. Has been ever since the first time I played it. I've I've only played Call of Cthulhu once, and this was back in I want to say 1997. Uh, a friend of ours really wanted us to play. I was into Vampire and Dungeons and Dragons at the time, and I of course jumped right into it and i just remember the over the, the way we ended up solving the issue uh without going insane was as we had to get basically a dump truck full of salt and dump it into this house to seal off whatever the creature was and it was so unlike anything like i was an investigator who was carrying a revolver and it was useless i was like oh my, yeah yeah it's, and it's i thought that game... was fascinating it's a game where the most commonly used skills are library use and spot hidden, uh, both of which are also skills that if you overuse them, you tend to discover things you really wish you hadn't. But yeah, combat skills like a handgun or if you're just trying to strike something unarmed uh, with a hand-to-hand -hand or close combat, what have you, uh, it always seems like a good idea because every other tabletop role-playing game has combat sort of ingrained into it. And there are rules for combat in Call of Cthulhu, and yes, you may come up against cultists who are all too human and as vulnerable as you, but if you're facing off against a moon beast that has tendrils for a face and will quite happily swallow your head, uh, punching it and indeed shooting it isn't going to achieve much. No, you always have to sort of think think outside the box when playing Call of Cthulhu. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that I love about the game is that you do have to. I mean, I could have very well just thrown the pistol at the at the creature, and and because that's how useless it was. And I like the mm. fact that it causes you to think and try to find other ways to solve the issue. It's a it's a fascinating game. Definitely, and you know, I think. Well, in fact, my experience, I can't speak for this in a kind of, I guess, global role players sense. But my experience is that Call of Cthulhu was one of the first games to really appeal to non-males. Um, oh. Because it doesn't have that over-focus. When you think of the original D&D, &D, and you think of RuneQuest and the other real old-school tabletop RPGs, they were so based around, I guess, the, the stereotypical male fantasy of uh, running into battle and hitting things with your sword. Yes. And while there's definitely plenty of women who enjoy that kind of thing too, uh, what Call of Cthulhu did was take away the necessity for for you to... Uh, have a brawny character with no intelligence, but the focus on social roleplay and investigation. And all of a sudden, it's not that that appeals, I think, to women more. I think it's that it appeals to a broader audience uh, in, a, in an easier way, I guess. Uh, people can relate more, I think, to mundane struggles. To Okay, so how am I going to find out about this... Uh, 
this cultist character, this high priest. I'm going to go to the library and search the name of his cult. Another person goes to the court and sees whether this high priest has got a criminal record. Uh, and you, there's a whole part of this game that is all about the investigation. I think most people get that. There isn't a barrier to entry that's based on the innate misogyny that exists in a lot of tabletop role-playing games of old. And while that's being cleared up in a lot of cases, it still exists to a degree. Call of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu uh, still has it. It's the 1920s. It's not like everyone is equal in the 1920s. People aren't equal now. But it never disadvantages you for playing something other than a big strapping man or hard-boiled private detective, which I think is good. You've got... You, the, the book itself basically allows you to create characters from scratch and be whatever profession you want them to be, whether that's retired military, the, the hard-boiled private detective, a dilettante, so someone who's born into wealth and has no real skills other than a fat wallet. Uh, you could be a, an entertainer, you could be a doctor, you could be any profession that existed at the time because your character is more important than the rank or their, their trade, I guess. Um, it's more about them as a personality. And so, yeah, it's, it's less rigid, I would say, than games like Dungeons & Dragons. I would say you're definitely known for horror role-playing game when it comes to Vampire the Masquerade and Cult, Divinity Lost. Um, how is it you came into Call of Cthulhu? So I came into Call of Cthulhu as a player, one of the probably one of the first role-playing games I ever played, uh, as I participated in a campaign of the Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth. Yogg-Sothoth is one of the great old ones in Call of Cthulhu. And Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth was one of the first published mega adventures for Call of Cthulhu, I believe. So it was a good entry point. It was cr uh, crushingly difficult. I remember myself and the fellow players, we managed to get to the second chapter of the scenario, and it takes you to a village in Scotland where I think it's as uh, simple as a little girl is missing, very wicker man. And you very quickly develop a sense of paranoia because it it becomes apparent that many of the people that live in this Scottish village in the middle of the Highlands, cut off from everywhere, belong to a cult, the Order of the Silver Twilight. And they are not uh, opposed to murder to, to basically defend themselves and protect their secrets. And, and further to that, they're protecting some serpent folk or lizard people from, from another dimension. They're living in the caves beneath the village. Now, you're up there ostensibly to look into the disappearance of this girl. Meanwhile, everyone who you're asking questions of in the village could be a cultist. And so the way you obtain information in Call of Cthulhu, if there isn't a handy library nearby, is usually to ask people questions, as it would be in real life. But the, I remember the sense of paranoia that the group felt. We ended up pretty much being convinced that the entire village were, were cultists. And it was only some years later that I bought the, the Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth myself, and it turns out only about three of them are. But 
the atmosphere was so pervasive that it hooked me and it made all of the players think that um oh you've gone away patrick you're back wonderful uh, but yeah the atmosphere was so pervasive that i just loved call of cthulhu from then on and it's probably one of the role-playing games i ran the most I've, i think i've ran more call of cthulhu than i have vampire the masquerade um yep almost almost certainly i think i find mysteries for call of cthulhu cases for investigators to look into far easier to come up with on the fly than vampire i think call of cthulhu is a perfect convention game because you just have a one case to solve in the course of a three or four hour slot and it took me a while to actually start writing all of cthulhu but eventually i uh let's think how did i get into it I think the first Call of Cthulhu uh, writing that I did was for Cold War Cthulhu by Cubicle 7, because uh, Call of Cthulhu as a license is open. It's uh, it, basically the works of H.P. Lovecraft are public domain. So lots of companies have the right, well, can release games about Cthulhu and not worry about treading on toes, but Chaosium own certain aspects of it uh, that they created that are so synonymous with Call of Cthulhu now that I think people who are just entering into it assume that's still part of the public domain. Either way, I contributed to this Cold War Cthulhu game, which I was very fond of, which is set in the 1950s to 1980s. It's very much on uh, Le Carre, you know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy more than uh, James Bond and the idea of these Lovecraftian elements or Cthuloid elements in the background manipulating the Cold War or just happening to prey upon both Soviets and OSS agents and the like while um, the Cold War is raging. And yeah, I wrote a scenario for that in, I think it was, the book was called Section 46. Uh, the operations manual, I believe, or it might have been covert actions. I don't know. It was a while back. Um, but then I ended up writing for Chaosium, uh, and I wrote one of their scenarios for their organized play, because just like Dungeons Dragons has its Adventurers League and uh, Pathfinder has the Society, uh, Call of Cthulhu has an organized play. It's a little more low key. But uh, you can get these scenarios for free from their website if you sign up to their organized playlist. And the Ooh. second one, I think, is mine. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. And from there, yeah, I uh, ended up writing this whole damn source book uh, by myself. So, that, that, yeah, it was only recently that I really started getting into writing it. But I've enjoyed it a great deal. It's a different, it's a change of pace from Vampire and the other games I work on. How similar was would you say it is to things like Cult? Or that, is it similar? Well, that depends, I think, on the person running it, because most games of Call of Cthulhu I play and don't have as much uh I guess Gnostic horror, certainly. There's there's far fewer angels and devils in it. There's nothing so blatantly uh Gnostic oh, yeah. or or proto Christian. But and, and likewise, Call of Cthulhu, as, I guess, a book by Chaosium, 
doesn't delve too deeply into the idea of things like, um, well, there's quite a lot of sexual horror in cults, as well as sort of gross-out, gory horror. A cult has its subtleties as well, but uh, I I know, I've worked on it. But I think Call of Cthulhu, oddly, considering that its main antagonists are you know, gargantuan aliens from some forbidden part of the galaxy is a lot more subtle. That uh, there's a creeping tension in Call of Cthulhu that just builds and builds and builds until you conquer it, you run away from it, or you lose yourself to it. Whereas Cult has a kind of similar situation by its close, but the direction for getting there, the sort of road for getting there, is uh, generally a lot more jagged and covered in thorns and sort of ripping you to shreds as you walk it. Well, I think I would love to, if if you ever take part of a Call of Cthulhu uh, story with Redmond role-playing like you did with The Summit for Cult. Um, in fact, I even messaged you while I was listening to The Summit and just said, holy crap, because uh, it was so it was so intense. I was I truly was. And it's not often that I say this because I struggle with book on, books on tape. My wife loves them. I struggle with them. I know there's fantastic stories being told that way. But when I listened to Cult, I was riveted every I, I was literally hanging on every word of both you and the players. And it was so well done. I would love to hear an actual play of Call of Cthulhu that you're running. Oh, that's that is lovely of you to say, um, and I do think the summit is up there as one of the best uh, games I've ran for Red Moon Role Playing. They they really got it as players, and the audience uh, that has listened to it really responded to it as well. Uh, so, in terms of Call of Cthulhu, I may well do when this uh, book I've worked on gets closer to release. Um, and I'm sure Redmin Roleplaying would do a fantastic job with it. There's so many different assets of Cthulhu as well, published by different companies. There's Trail of Cthulhu by Pelgrane Press. There's Delta Green. There's uh, there's even Masks of the Mythos, which is coming up for Scion by Onyx Path Publishing. Yeah. Uh, so rather than just being the uh, child of Zeus or Thor, you can now be a child of Cthulhu. See how that isn't, works out for you. Isn't uh, Chris Spivey working on that one as well? Yeah, he's developing that one. Yeah, because, of course, he did Harlem Unbound for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, and that is a an incredibly well-regarded book, and rightfully so. It's uh, amazing, amazingly well-written, and provides I... an insight into a, I think... Well, frankly, culture that has often been ignored by especially white audiences who are looking at the 1920s. So, yeah, I yeah, just Chris, Chris just excellent. got that book, and I'm really looking forward to reading through that book. Uh, we're actually hoping to get Chris on the show, so we'll be able to talk a lot more about that book. Um, but speaking of books, of course, you know, you've talked a little bit about this unnamed book uh, that your work that you've submitted to Chaosium. <laughs> What exactly can you tell us? Uh, pretty much what I've just told you. Uh, ah, you're they, killing me. So, <laughs> no, no, I can tell you that it's about, uh, and you shouldn't name him. You're not supposed to name him. I will name him, uh, because I'm only going to do it once, and I will perform a ritual. Just don't do here. it three times. <laughs> That's generally the rule. Uh, who, Whoever came up with the three-time rule, obviously, well, <laughs> I think... Uh, 
yeah, the cultist that decided to tease an investigator and say, it's all right to say has to uh, twice, just don't say it a third time or you might get his attention, was just, I think, winding the investigator up because in that occasion, has to probably appeared after the first time and just, just devoured the investigator. Yeah, it's about Haster and the kinds of people that follow him, the kinds of adventures uh, that... Uh, so there's going to be scenarios in it, there'll be lots of sample cults in it, there'll be new magic, new monsters, new in, uh, some investigators you can play straight off the bat, that kind of thing. It's a, fo it's a complete package. And Haster is one of the great old ones, and one of the, probably the most popular great old ones from a fan perspective. He has crossed over into lots of different media. Uh, Hasta, or the King in Yellow, uh, who is one of Hasta's avatars or different consciousnesses. Uh, True Detective, as an example, season one of True Detective uh, has the King in Yellow or the Yellow King and Carcosa appearing in it. Right. Uh, well, especially close to the end. But uh, yeah. Uh, it's been a lot. It's been a great pleasure to work on that, and it's just my luck. Of course, Robin D. Laws, fantastic author, released the Yellow King, a role-playing game for Pelgrane Press, not that long ago. So, uh, hopefully, the two books won't be held up next to each other, um, <laughs> because there's no way mine will win against Robin's. But uh, I think they both approach the subject matter from two very different vantages. And yeah, I, I think it's it's going to be a, gay, a book that has a lot in it for uh, a lot of different keepers and players. As one of the things I always strive for, no matter what book I'm writing or game I'm writing for, is it has to contain utility, things that people can use. It can't just be lots of lovely text that's fun to read, although that's nice as well. Uh, and I'm... Oh, it sounds like we're just about to be strafed by a fighter plane. Sorry about that. And I'm quite happy. I'm quite happy with the content in my book. But yeah, I can't give away too much of what's in it. Unfortunately. It's unfortunate. That is unfortunate. Well, you know what? Okay. So we know it's about Haster, the Yellow King. Um, and that's, that's twice we've said it now. Yep. We need to stop. Uh, so let's talk about something you can talk about. And that's a soon to be kick uh project that's coming to kickstarter from onyx path being hmm. they came from beyond the grave yes which so is the, the second grave. in the in that they came from series it is isn't that isn't that heartening when you've released one role-playing game and it's successful enough that you can do a second one um, yeah yeah they came from beyond the grave is a tabletop role-playing game based around the sort of 1970s Hammer Horror, Amicus Horror, Roger Corman stable of movies. And so it's all Christopher Lee's, Peter Cushing's, Ingrid Pitt's, uh, Donald Pleasant's, that kind of thing. And it doesn't have the same level of farce as Beneath the Sea. It's still a humorous game. It's still a game you play for fun more than for deep introspection. And it's a game set across the 1970s and the 19th century. The supposition going into this game is that you will create two characters, or you will basically create one character who can be played in two different eras. Essentially, you're playing him or her or them here in the 1970s, and then you're playing their ancestor, someone who basically shares their traits, 
19th century. Because some of my favorite movies of the period are things like Tales from the Crypt, uh, The House That Dripped Blood, all these stories that were portmanteaus where you had like 25 minute vignettes before you then went to the other inhabitant of the house and found out what horrible thing they'd done. And that is the shtick with they came from beyond the grave. You will have your cast of characters that will generally go to somewhere terrible. It could be a creepy house on the side of a cliff. It could be to the cave complex where no one goes. It could be anything, really. And you will tell stories and go through adventures. There's more ham to it than farce, I would say. It still has the mechanics that were very popular in Beneath the Sea, things like cinematics and quips. It doesn't really take anything away. In fact, it is built to be additional to see. Uh, so it contains all of the core rules, but if you want both games and you want to cross them over, you can very easily do that, as very few of the cinematics are repeated. None of the archetypes are repeated. They're all completely different character classes, if you will, and all of the quips are different. So essentially, you can put them together and make one very big game that covers both science fiction and horror. So yeah, it's something a lot of people are looking forward to, it seems. Anecdotally, anyway, I think more people are excited about Beyond the Grave than were about Beneath the Sea, so that's nice. And I ran it at the Onyx Path Con, which, which we had a few weeks ago at time of recording, and it went down spectacularly well, uh, with all credit to uh, B. Dave Waters of LA by Night, because he participated in that as a smooth P.I., in the 1970s, a sort of dolomite shaft kind of character, and he was absolutely amazing in it. Uh, it re he really captured that 1970s vibe. I can see B. Dave doing that. He does some great work. Oh yeah, yeah. He, no, he's excellent. I'm working with him on Wealth: The Apocalypse Fifth Edition. Yes, yes, that's right. I forgot that he was on that. That's another game that I know that we're going to be looking into very soon because we're going to be doing a whole month of Werewolf very soon. But that's besides the Ooh. point. Um, so when is this Kickstarter launching? Or do you know? Should be in the next. Should be in the next couple of weeks. So look for it around mid July. Uh, I think we have all of the art assets we're waiting for, and so that basically just means we need to get the Kickstarter set up and approved by Kickstarter. So. That's nice. We're hoping to have a trailer movie like we did for Beneath the Sea, which was uh, nice. constructed by Larry uh, Blamire, who directed movies like Trail of the Screaming Forehead and Lost Skeleton of Cadavera. Uh, he is interested in doing a Beyond the Grave trailer as well, so hopefully that will come to light. And I think we'll have a Red Moon role-playing actual play as well. At the very least, we'll, we'll have a couple of things to promote it as it's going on. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to this because a lot of my time writing is spent uh, working on horror games that are pretty damn miserable, <laughs> and I love it. I, you know, I, I cannot complain because this is the life I have chosen, and I'm very fortunate to be able to be creative for a living. But it can be grinding when you are working on nothing but. Uh, I guess, stark horror all the time. And so Beyond the Grave has a technicolor attitude toward horror. 
it feels like the 1970s where there's a lot of over-the-top acting, a lot of unnecessary screaming, the occasional heaving bosom, and the ridiculous amount of glowing reddish, orangish blood on the screen um, because people are celebrating that they can record things in glorious Technicolor now. That's excellent. And of course, the fans of They Came From Beneath the Sea, or Beyond the... Uh... They came from beneath the sea. Sorry, getting confused of my. They came from games. Um, those who backed the Kickstarter anyway should have found out that. I know they've. I mean, your your time to get your information is just about done because that book's about to ship. Yeah, I mean, it's taken longer than we would have hoped because of the pandemic. I mean, right. but it's hardly the worst thing to come out of the pandemic, but it did disrupt the uh, shipping of and publication of they came from beneath the sea unfortunately but thankfully things seem to be uh, rolling along now for some reason so i'm not questioning it if the books are prepared to uh, go out to people then that's good news as far as i'm concerned but of course listeners do feel free if needs be to uh, keep it in your porch for a week before you open the package, I would hate to find out that someone contracted COVID from they came from beneath the sea. My yeah. my role playing game killed people. Um, so do do as you will. Spray it if you like before and after use. Stay safe, please. Don't let Matthew's game kill you. <laughs> <laughs> let it kill you with laughter or, or or in the horror aspect, but not because of COVID. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the attitude, I think. So obviously they came from Beyond the Grave is, is again, as you mentioned with Roger Corman, is pulling from the, the your love of cinema. And we've talked about that before. What are some of the movies that really influenced you with this game? So, oh, gosh, there's so many. Uh, because <laughs> in a way, the best Dracula movies, best Hammer Dracula movies, are the ones that released in the decade before uh, the one this is set in, because I don't want this to be a game about really high-quality horror. I want this to be about Dracula AD 1974, or however it's written, which uh, start, has Dracula with sideburns. And still Christopher Lee. Essentially, it's the movies where Christopher Lee is increasingly tired of playing this bloody count. <laughs> um, but Peter Cushing is always game for uh, for staking. He he's always up for it. Uh, I think there's there are really good movies from the 70s that I love. Like uh, one that I always recommend is Asylum. Asylum is a movie by Amicus. Amicus were much like Hammer, a movie studio. Well, Hammer still exists. I don't know if Amicus does. But a movie studio that excelled in making portmanteau movies. So portmanteaus, as I mentioned, are stories or movies that contain multiple short stories. And the uh, Tales from the Crypt movies uh, and the Twilight Zone movie later on are sort of synonymous with Asylum has a character, a new doctor, going to an asylum and essentially being told, you will get the job at the asylum if you can diagnose each of the patients, or something to that effect. And so he travels from patient to patient, like four of them during the course of the film, and as he visits each of them, they tell him their story, and then you see that story play out. And these patients include uh, 
uh, trying to remember some of the actors in it now. Uh, you have the uh, chap from A Clockwork Orange who who is fantastic for his intense stares. He is the author in A Clockwork Orange. Uh, Patrick McGee, I think. And uh, among various others, Peter Cushing appears in this movie as well. And it's a movie where you can kind of see the end coming from a mile off because eventually, spoilers, it was released in the 1970s, it turns out that the person showing the new doctor around is in fact one of the patients who has escaped. And he murders him. <laughs> the movie ends. But it's such a fantastic little film of short horror stories. I completely love it. It's one of my favorites. I watch it again and again. And I it's it really influenced me for this game because it has the this and Tales from the Crypt, the original Tales from the Crypt movie, have ridiculous deaths, ridiculous stories, ridiculous plots. But the actors are trying to portray them all so damn earnest. They're acting them out as if this is going to be the thing that shoots them into limelight. Tales from the Crypt has got a wonderful scene where a escaped uh, patient from uh, an asylum is dressed as Father Christmas or Santa Claus and breaks into Joan Collins's house and strangles her to death from behind with his hands on her shoulders. He, he sort of gives her a very vigorous neck and shoulder massage and she her head is just lolling about like she's being strangled. It's bizarre. It's not nonsense. But uh, it's played so honest. And I, I had the same feeling with Beneath the Sea. I love the B-movies of the 1950s where the actors truly think this is going to be the next big science fiction. Ed Wood is, of course, a very good example of this with movies yes. like Plan 9 from Outer Space. And I think you get that a lot with 1970s horror. Now, of course, there are fantastic 1970s horror movies as well. Some of the best horror movies are from the 1970s. It was a real revolutionary decade for horror. So we've got monsters in the game, everything from Dracula and the Brides of Dracula to the Stalking Killer to the Devil himself, spelt in all caps whenever it appears in the book, and, and cultists and such like. So you can play any aspect of this uh, horror genre, really. But yeah, uh, I think it's a... Um, uh, trying to think of any other movies we've i put in such a long list of sort of inspiration inspirational media and beyond the grave um but when people see it, i don't want them to just read through it and think oh that's interesting i want them to check out some of these films some of them you can watch for free probably illegally on youtube uh, and it's worth checking them out because they will really inspire you as to how to run or play this game that's actually my next question is where can we find some of these films? Because I know some of them, well, the majority of them are probably not on streaming services like Netflix. Well, no, I think uh, some of them might be on Shudder, which is another streaming service. I uh, regrettably don't own, don't have Shudder. I should because I love horror. Um, but let's see. 
you could probably get DVDs of a lot of them. I doubt you're ever going to get a Criterion collection for most of these, but uh, you can probably get DVDs, maybe the occasional Blu-ray. Uh, YouTube does have a lot of this uh, material online for free. And whether that means... I don't think they've entered the public domain. But I think so many of them yeah. aren't making money in any other means. That no one really cares, and that's a horrible thing to think uh, about anything, really, because I'm not not a fan of piracy. And yet, if there is no other way to access this, these movies, literally no other way, then I say at least, you know, if you like it, if you watch it and like it, then at least consider picking up a copy of another movie by the same studio, you know? Um, but yeah. Uh, I recommend, let's see, I've actually got my um, draft here, and I've got a whole load of this inspirational media. I'm just trying to think. We've got <laughs> some of them, yeah, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which I'm pretty certain is on uh, YouTube as well. The Blood on Satan's Claw is actually a really serious uh, horror movie. Um, of the 1970s, it has the feel of the Wicker Man or the Witchfinder General. Everything is really grimy and and you know, seedy. And again, there's lots of screaming, lots of violence in it. Uh, the House That Dripped Blood, I mentioned earlier. You have everyone from uh, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, of course. Uh, you can't move without bumping into one of them in all of these movies. Um, right. And yeah, it was Dracula, AD 90. 72, uh, which, uh, not 1974, AD 1972, which was released unsurprisingly in 1972. It looks um, like I'm sitting, I'm on, on my Amazon Prime account where I found uh, Asylum where you can stream it for free. It looks like Amazon has a lot of these through Prime Video. So if you do have oh, that wonderful. streaming service, you can watch a lot of these shows for free. Well, I think most people do have Prime now. So that's a good shout. And I would say, in fact, I'm surprised I forgot about it. Amazon Prime has an amazing collection of terrible movies. Yes, uh, Netflix, <laughs> Netflix is interesting, uh, just as an aside, because it gives the impression of having a very sort of curated list, uh, you know, a small selection that's changed up occasionally. But it's got this weird thing where if you actually search by category, uh, and the categories aren't labeled. You can't find them anyway. You've got to look for them online. And if you type the category in, you can find a whole other raft of movies that aren't accessible via the main page. It's weird. And right. Amazon Prime <laughs> just kind of puts everything on display. It's like uh, Netflix has a hidden room behind the curtain of the shop where, you know, if you want the weird stuff, you've got to ask for it. Whereas Amazon Prime, it's all in the shop window. So you've got um, a movie as excellent as Interstellar next to, um, let's see, The Beast Must Die, which, by the way, The Beast Must Die is an excellent werewolf movie. And rarely for a movie in the 1970s with a predominantly white cast, the uh, lead actor is a black man and uh, very smooth and charming. He's, uh, I don't remember the actor's name, Calvin Lockhart. That was a Calvin Lockhart. and. God, he is amazing. We have uh, based the art of our hunter archetype in uh, They Came From Beyond the Grave on Calvin Lockhart because he is that damn cool. Gotcha. 
So you have a lot of stuff you're working on right now, Matthew. Oh, always. Yes, I never stop working. <laughs> you can't really afford to in, well, uh, you don't get paid much in this kind of industry anyway, but you can't afford to partly for the risk of competition uh, in sort of opening the door to the dark and deep secrets of the RPG industry, gaming in general. There are so many people that want to get into it that when you um, get into it, you kind of need to cling on to it with your fingertips and uh, and keep working to make sure people know that you're reliable and good. Um, so I don't just keep working out of fear, though. Uh, I am on a long-term contract with Onyx Path, so that's good. Uh, yeah, I'm still working on lots of Vampire the Masquerade products, both role-playing games, board games, video games as well. So adding new uh, arrows to my quiver every single day, it seems, with Vampire. That's and it, you know I say that it's uh, a hardship to work on such stark horror, but I love Vampire, and I'm so grateful that. So many people sort of uh, associate me with that brand. It's it's lovely to know. Um, not to. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of uh, made an impression, good or bad, on Vampire the Masquerade at this point. And you're just going to be stuck with me for a while. The people might try to get me fired, but no one's succeeded yet. Let's hope it continues with that trend because you're you're doing some excellent work, including I just realized uh, looking at your website that you worked on the the new board game Swan Song for Vampire the Masquerade. Oh no, Swan Song is the video game. Uh, you oh, is that see... the video game? Okay, yeah. I, I'm getting confused because there's been so many new Vampire the Masquerade either video or board games that came out. Uh, I, yeah. I, for some reason, I was thinking this was the card game. Which one? Uh, no, so the board games that I've worked on for Vampire the Masquerade are Heritage, yes. uh, which is the centuries spanning one, Chapters, which is the one set in Montreal. Uh, there is a trailer for Chapters, which is out. Uh, the trailer was all was written by myself, so if you enjoy it, say, tell me, you know, <laughs> it's, it's always nice to know. Um, and Blood Feud as well. Uh, I contributed quite a lot to that one as well. In terms of the video games, one I can't say, I can't even name, um, not allowed, but Swan Song. I have done some writing for that and will hopefully be doing more writing in the future. So, yeah, uh, I am branching out from the tabletop RPGs, but it is where my heart lies and I'm sure where I will always go back to. I must, I, like I said, I got myself confused as to which one's which because like, there's been a lot of, lot of products announced for this. Um, Heritage is one that I think I learned about that one a few years ago, and I was so sad that when that one came to Kickstarter, I was not able to back it. And then I find out, I think it was four months ago, that my younger brother, we were him and I were visiting, and he says, oh, by the way, I backed that game Heritage on Kickstarter. Well, that one's due to be fulfilled quite soon. I think people are going to start receiving their copies. That's going to be exciting because him and I are both really looking forward to playing that one. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear cool. it. Well, Matthew, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to have you on our show. I love it so much when you can come in and talk to us about Vampire or any of the other stuff that you're working on. I know that you just were part of a very successful cult Kickstarter. Um, yes. And- 
God, yeah, I, I am busy, aren't I? Uh, it's, yes. I, I am always living in fear that I'm going to forget something that I'm working on. This is what spreadsheets were built for, and I'm so bad at maintaining mine. Um, uh, yes, I contributed a scenario to the recent cult uh, Kickstarter, um, the scenario mm -hmm. book, uh, which I think is called Screams and Whispers. That's uh, I I didn't develop the book, so I didn't come up with the overall title, but I um, I came up with a scenario called It Started and Ended with Screams. And it, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or try to sound edgy, but if you thought the summit was horrible, this one is worse. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> part of me wonders if I... If this is the thing that's going to sink me <laughs> in the industry, um, but the thing is, with it started and ended with screams, uh, which is set in a uh, center for troubled youths. Oh, geez. Um, it's it's definitely a very troubling scenario, and it's um, deliberately so. And I have placed throughout it warnings and guidelines that you know, absolutely do not run this for your average tabletop group. Everyone needs to sign on for this. Everyone needs to be aware of what this scenario can contain, and any of it can be stripped out, minus the core plot. And the core plot isn't actually terribly shocking. It's everything that's going on around it. But it's a... Um, it's a scenario that handles some pretty heavy subject material. Uh, some of it I am, I guess, intimately aware of. Others, other parts of it I've researched or gained consultation on. I've been very careful with it, but I have no doubt that it will not be for every single group. And that's fine. You know, I don't want my games to be for every single group. I uh, said in an interview recently, and I maintain this, uh, when someone comes up to me about the summit or emails me about the summit and says, I didn't think much of that, uh, I'm fine with that. I really don't mind if people don't like my work. I see myself like, I guess, any other creative individual. Uh, the Beatles, I don't see myself as the Beatles, but the Beatles uh, had lots of songs. Some people absolutely love Love Me Do and She Loves You and Please Please Me and Can't Stand Helter Skelter. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Beatles are a shit band. And likewise, some people might really like my vampire work, but not like my cult work. Some people might really like the cult work, but may have no taste for Call of Cthulhu, or Mummy the Curse, or Contagion Chronicle, or any of the other games I've worked on. So I'm quite comfortable with that. But I do think this one is going to be probably the most divisive piece of work that I've seen published. So I'll look forward to seeing the reactions. You ever sit back when you finish writing something, sit back and go, wow, Matthew, that was really fucked up. Yeah, uh, this <laughs> um, some of the flaws in the summit as well. Um, I mean, the gestation for the summit occurs in Beckett's Jihad Diary. There's uh, for Vampire the Masquerade. There's a chapter in that where I have a um, Ali infested. Yes. Uh, high rise. I, you know, I thought there were similarities between those two. Okay. 
that makes sense. And well, I mean, it's all all set off by J.G. Ballard, of course, and High Rise, the novel and the movie. But I I like contained horror, and uh, not because the it, it prevents people from running away, although that certainly plays a part. But because with something like a tower block know that with every level you ascend it's going to get worse and worse but you feel compelled to do it because you're curious because you're human and uh, because there might actually be something for you at the top you might find something out about yourself you might get the big reward whatever and um i remember when i was writing summits there were parts of it there were certainly parts of it i cut you know there were flaws i thought you know what let's not do this it's too vulgar of course and I don't regret doing that, moving them. Um, there's still material in there that's vulgar, but it's deliberately vulgar. It's deliberately there to make people think, oh, this is disgusting, not make the players feel nauseous. You know? uh, I've no desire to, to, bring, <laughs> to bring about physical revulsion from the players. Have it from your characters, definitely. Uh, I like for there to be a certain level of remove being player and character thought. I know that when, like I said, when I listened to the summit, um, everything about that story, everything about the way you told it, the way the players played it, made me buy the game Cult. I had always been intrigued by it, but I just could never pull the trigger until I listened to that, and I was like, I have to own this game. But I know in my heart that this is never a game that I can bring to my table. Yeah, and I think that is a perfectly reasonable thing to decide on. Um, because not every single gaming group likes every single type of game. And just the same as you don't, not everyone goes to the cinema to watch The Devil's Rejects by Rob Zombie. Um, not every single person goes to see a romantic comedy starring Julia Roberts or whoever else. Uh, different audiences like different things, and providing it isn't just... So I have a... I guess I have a bit of a line, a bit of a boundary. I don't like to put in things like sexual violence or racism um, or... I don't like to punch down with my material for the sake of punching down. I think it's quite... It's it's an easy thing to do to generate shock, and shock isn't really what I want out of my material, whether it's fiction, whether it's gaming material, or what have you. So I'm not going to have someone with a disability being abused for having a disability, as an example. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I know that the summit has some material in it that is absolutely repulsive. So. Yeah, uh, I guess um, I'm being a bit rambly, but I do think that it's absolutely fine for gaming groups to say, you know what, we don't fancy this. The very first gaming group I was ever a part of said, we don't want to play Vampire the Masquerade. It sounds too bleak. And so the first group I played with, well, I never played Vampire with. I didn't play Vampire until about like the fourth year of getting into role-playing. Mm. Um, when I was at a new table at the same club, and even then, it was only Dark Ages because they hated 
contemporary setting. They wanted the sort of uh, the great swinging swords and marching into the dark uh, between the sort of flickering lights of distant towns. So yeah, um, it's it's a shame in a way that you will never get to experience cult. But that's what online gaming is for: find the right right group for you. And that's something I'm going to once my schedule settles down that I will be working towards because I want to experience the game because I think it is I think it's a beautiful game. It's beautifully dark. It's it. it I, I say this about Wraith as well, Wraith the Oblivion, because I think Wraith is a beautifully depressing and dark game. Um, I've tried playing Wraith and it's always it's one of those games that I I love the game, but it's really difficult to play. And I think cult is going to be like that and it's got to be with the right group mm. so i'm looking forward to it <laughs> yeah uh well i do yeah i do hope you um i know i completely agree i think cult is a beautiful game if if nothing else uh, from an aesthetic perspective it is just wondrous every single page is a fantastic book to just look at and yeah, um, I hope you do get a lot of uh, dark and sinister fun out of it. So do I. Well, Matthew, that is the, all the time that we have. Um, again, I thank you so much for coming on the show. It is always a pleasure to have you on. I look forward to many more times where we can talk. And then perhaps maybe one day when the world settles down, I can meet you at a convention and actually have you sign one of my books. Oh, maybe. Well, you know, if I can, if we ever start flying to and from America again, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> so thanks again, Matthew. My pleasure.